Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness. Um, How and why. It's a complicated and extremely personal subject for lots of us here. Um, Even as I say, uh, forgive others. Some of us will be filled with words like, I can't, you don't understand, it's too hard. You're probably right, I probably don't understand. But we can know that Jesus really does understand. So we're going to listen to his teaching this morning. Last week we considered how to treat those in the family gathering who sin and won't repent This week, we are considering arguably a far harder thing, how to treat those in the family gathering who sin and do repent. Imagine with me the scene, perhaps immediately before verse 21. Peter was perhaps pondering the prayer that Jesus taught him. He pauses on the only line in the Lord's Prayer with a conditional clause. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, Forgiveness, you see, it's not a foreign idea in the Old Testament, and so wouldn't have been a foreign idea to Peter. 
So this wouldn't have been a big surprise, but it does become very central in the new covenant age. So Peter's got a question, and it's a good one. How often should we forgive somebody? Verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Uh, Peter's question isn't a bad one at all. His question isn't, should we forgive at all? It is, is there a limit to how much we forgive? Because we don't want to be a doormat and walked all over, do we, Jesus? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Peter's question is a very human question, isn't it? What do we humans do when we get given a commandment? We check if there's a loophole, don't we? Is there a limit? Can we make it easier? And why do we want to find the get-out clause here? Because forgiveness is always costly. We'll come back to think about this more later on, but forgiveness means to pardon or to cancel, to leave completely and abandon the consequences. It means taking the cost away from the perpetrator and bearing it entirely yourself. So, where is the limit of Jesus' costly forgiveness? Rabbinic law said we should forgive somebody up to three times. So Peter, thinking himself big-hearted, he volunteers up an answer, more than double than that. How about seven times? And honestly, theories abound why he chooses the number seven. Really, it doesn't matter at all because of Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer? Infinitely. Limitlessly. There is no limiting number. Verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or indeed, uh, sorry, 70 times seven. Or indeed, as the footnote has it, 77 times. Now, before we get the calculator out, we need to not miss the point. Uh, Whether the footnote is right, and Jesus is saying 77 and not 78 times, or whether 70 times 7, making 490 times, and not 491 times, it would be missing the point entirely, wouldn't it? The point of Jesus' response is to say, stop counting. In context, he isn't saying 78 times is the upper limit. Nor is he saying forgiveness is so unqualified that it cancels out the procedures that we looked at last week if people aren't repenting. Rather, forgiveness isn't a number. It's more a state of the heart rather than a calculation. So if you're counting, you are not forgiving. How often should I forgive my brother? Answer, as often as they sin against me. There's a lovely illusion here, which is worth a moment to enjoy. Back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain had brutally murdered his brother Abel. And so the fall is very much in full swing. Then, Then God curses Cain, and he casts him out into the earth to be a wanderer. Cain, though, is fearful of being killed himself as he wanders. So God, in his kindness, marks Cain out, explaining, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him 
sevenfold. Then, later in the same chapter, we meet Lamech, Cain's offspring, who's a very strange man indeed. But Lamech boasts to his wives, comparing himself to Cain. Cain's multiple vengeance was simply a sevenfold vengeance, which is nothing compared to what he would do. He will up that with unlimited vengeance, i.e. 77-fold vengeance. And this is precisely how the world works today, isn't it? Increasing vengeance. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back twice as hard. You offend me, I'll break your legs. The more you hurt me, the more extreme my response is allowed to be. Revenge attacks. It's joining Lamech and the old way. Whereas, what Jesus is doing here is changing the game. He's saying, whereas the old sinful way took unlimited vengeance, so now in the new covenant takes unlimited forgiveness. It's the most glorious changing of the guard imaginable. So within the family of God, in the new covenant, our attitude to forgiveness is not just one of multiple forgiveness, but unlimited, infinite forgiveness. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't downplay sin. He doesn't ignore the reality that sin hurts. He is not saying, forget about sin. He is taking into account that sin will happen, and there is always a cost with sin. Somebody needs to take the weight of and effects of sin on. Question becomes, who's going to take the cost? True forgiveness. It doesn't ignore sin, but looks sin squarely in the face. And forgiveness, it's such a key pillar of Christianity. And if we were just talking about our prejudice or something trivial, that would be much easier to forgive. But when somebody has sinned and it hurts us and it cuts us deeply, especially when it's our brothers, Christian brothers and sisters here, that is when forgiveness is truly remarkable. So, uh, forgiveness then is an, uh, both an attitude and an action. Uh, the offer of forgiveness as well as the reconciliation process. Um, it begins, you see, with a decision to not hold on to the sin or the sinner. And that means acting in a way that is clear that we have forgiven. That attitude, it can and it should be instant. But reconciliation, it can take a very long time indeed. I'd like to say, though, with two repenting Christians, I think it is always a possibility. Though just briefly, um, let's make one very crucial caveat. Uh, Forgiveness, it does not mean always going back for more pain. If, for example, um, a relationship was abusive, um, forgiveness could mean forgiving the scars, but does not mean going back to receive fresh wounds. I would say it is good and right to report abuse and other things like that, 
and allow the appropriate authorities to deal with offenders. But it is in the face of sin that God says, forgive and do it infinitely. Is that hard? Yeah, of course it is. Is it unreasonable to demand of the Christian? Well, just think for a moment of Jesus on that cruel cross. Spat at, hit, reviled, rejected, scorned, insulted, and crucified. And what does he say there? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I love Jesus because he doesn't just give us the theory. He shows us the practice in the most vivid way. Forgive as often as you are sinned against, which is infinitely. So why should we forgive infinitely? Well, it's simply this. Because we have been forgiven without measure. So we come to the story. And Jesus tells this story to persuade us of his points. And just what a beautiful and powerful story it is. But even though it's just a story, it is, if you like, based on a true story. I wonder if you can spot yourself in it as we go through. The story is a three-act drama with a very telling sting in the tale. Act one we could call forgiveness given. So the king is there in his palace. And he decides it's time to settle a debt with a sort of civil servant character. Uh, he gets out the calculator. What's the debt? Ouch. 10,000 talents. That is an eye-watering amount. Um, you'll see from the footnote, um, a single talent was roughly a king to a year's wage. Let's call it a modest 20,000 pounds to make the sums easier. So 20,000 times 10,000... He owes 200 million pounds. It doesn't say how he landed in such a debt, but just that he has such a debt. It is clearly unpayable. Not even a king would have this much money, let alone a servant figure. I mean, one of the boffins tells me that all the money in the whole of Galilee was only 200 talents. So even if he had all the money in Galilee, which obviously he wouldn't have, he wouldn't scratch the surface of this debt. He clearly can't pay. Nobody could pay this. Though Jesus isn't really about a specific number. See, the word for 10,000 was the biggest single number in Greek. And the talent was the biggest unit of currency. It's like he's saying the biggest big amount Jesus could express. It's like Jesus is saying a Google of pounds, astronomical debt, unimaginable debt, even for a king. It's unpayable. And we must grasp that very, very clearly because it's key to the whole story. And the king has called in this debt, pay up. The servant grovels, oh, I can't pay, I need time. The king's not amused. You'll have to be sold into slavery then, with your wife and your kids. 
Clearly, that wouldn't cover it. The most valuable slave ever recorded was sold for just a single talent. Normally, though, you could buy 20 slaves for a talent. So the slavery option will hardly help, no matter how many kids he's got. Verse 26 is an extraordinarily naive moment on the part of the slave, isn't it? Have patience on me, and I will pay you everything. Hardly. How will he do that? It's an impossible debt. Then the first twist in the story. The king, he's moved with pity for him. Or more literally, he's struck in the gut. It's actually the compassion word um, used of Jesus when he saw the helpless crowds in the feeding of the four and five thousands in this section. So the compassionate king, he says, verse 27, not as I would expect, fine, I'll give you time. That would be very, very kind. But he says, okay, don't worry about it. You're free. Debt completely written off. So the first act ends in stunning fashion. Act two, uh, it deliberately bears lots of resemblance to act one, but the differences are absolutely key. Uh, The same servant, as before, he walks into view, but his role has flipped. He's now the master with another servant beneath him. There's another debt, a hundred denarii. Not a trivial debt, maybe four months wages, but it is roughly a million times less than the first debt. And the servant, now master too, is not compassionate, but aggressive. Did you see that? Verse 28, seizing him, literally arresting him and choking or strangling him. The demand is plain. Pay what you owe. I wonder what tone of voice Jesus used when he said that line when telling the story. Then the identical response from the wrongdoer from Act 1. Falling down, pleadingly begging. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words, though this time I actually believe him. It's far more realistic, isn't it? Then the reverse twist. Again, I expect the master to allow time, just as requested. But he won't have it. This time, he doesn't allow time, and he definitely doesn't forgive. He's ruthless, harsh, and merciless. Bailiff is in, pack him off to prison. Just think through, though, the the servant's logic in this moment. Uh, He's thinking, I'm the victim here. Um, He has offended me. Uh, What else can I do? And just notice how quickly this servant has forgotten Act 1 and what happened to him and how it was, I think, the very same day as Act 1. 
Act two ends, therefore, in the most bitter of notes imaginable. And how are we feeling as audience members watching on? Craving act three? I think so. For justice to be revealed. And I love how Jesus, he tells this parable really to help us sympathize with God. To see things from his perspective. So very clever that in this story. Act three, it starts with a short first scene. Verse 31, the servant's friends report back to the king. Great distress. They are grieving. They've seen the first two acts play out in front of them and they see all the injustice. They must say something. Act three, scene two. Back in the original opening scene, The king summons the servant back. Verse 32. No leniency this time at all. You wicked servants. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you. Servant, in act two, you totally forgot act one. Anger, delivered to the jailers. Although the footnote, I think, is far more accurate there. He doesn't order prison like the servant did in Act 2. The king orders a far worse punishment. Torturers or or tormentors. The torturer was the most extreme debt collector imaginable. Tortured until he or his friends could pay the entire debt. And how long might that be for this servant? Well, in this man's case, I presume eternity, surely. We might expect Jesus to now say, this is just a story. God is not like that nasty king. God is all loving and forgiving. But read verse 35 very carefully. Jesus says, The king is just like God in that he will do exactly what the king did in Act 3. He will torture you forever if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the sting in the tail. See, it's a mirror, this story, for the unforgiving. It behaves like Nathan's parable to David in 2 Samuel 12. Maybe read it later. Um, The parables of a stolen lamb. There, Nathan exposes David's own heart by telling him a story, casting David as the sinner, which in turn shines a mirror on his own sinful actions. Verse 35, it exposes our unwillingness to forgive. It's a mirror to expose us if we are not forgiving. And notice, too, how he refers to God here. He doesn't say, our Heavenly Father, but my Heavenly Father. So Jesus is addressing those who think they are Christian, but are nothing of the sort. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is just what it means to be Christian. 
So if the king in the story is God, who is the servant? I pray that it wouldn't be any of us. Certainly not past act one. How then does this not apply? Uh, The imperative of this story is not this. You absolutely must, in every circumstance, no matter what, grit your teeth and forgive. If we just said that, we would be short-circuiting Jesus' teaching. He told this story to move us, to shape us, uh, to help us realize who God is, what he is really like, and our status before him. From that understanding, we can begin to contemplate the possibility of infinitely forgiving. For as we said, forgiveness is really very hard. It is always costly. Think of the king in the story. To write off such a debt would have cost him so much, probably destabilizing his kingdom. The cost has to go somewhere. And he took it all himself. Now we need to be careful not to overread the story. Uh, The unforgivable sin here is not failing to forgive your sibling. Rejecting Jesus is the unforgivable sin. We haven't suddenly changed into a religion of works here. Here's the logic, though. Um, If we won't forgive, we have not understood how God forgave us. And if we haven't understood how God forgave us, Are we really Christian? We must meditate on act one to realize our insurmountable, totally unpayable 10,000 talents of debt before our living God. Because to say that I'm in the kingdom and then fail to forgive, it is logically flawed. Uh, let's take a moment uh, for, um, to think about that word in verse 26. The servant, he asked God for patience. Patience, or literally, to be slow to boil. Um, the older translations rightly use the term long-suffering here. Forgiveness, then, is the ability to bear with suffering rather than give it out or give into it. A forgiveness is absorbing the debt yourself. The cost of the debt never evaporates away magically. True forgiveness takes on the burden of debt and to never bring it up ever again. In one sense, forgiveness is a voluntary suffering. In suffering, you can either retaliate or bear the cost yourself. Think through it for a moment, and we realize that it did cost God an awful lot to forgive us. Because, of course, it's easier to remain stubbornly angry, isn't it? And to lash out. That's always the easier option. And I don't want to pretend like I know each one of your wounds. Of course I won't know your particular pain. Though I do know 
that sin creates all sorts of painful wounds, which only the gospel can truly heal. Nothing else but the logic of this story will help us in those painful moments. Somebody might object to what we're saying here this morning by saying, won't offering infinite forgiveness like this make us into doormats, which anybody can just walk all over? All they need to do is repeatedly repent, and I'm now at their mercy. I mean, think of a marriage. Think of your friendships here. Think of maybe somebody here that you, you maybe even hate, dare I say the word. To which we, we could say, yes. A bit like a doormat. A bit like how we walk all over Jesus all the time. And how beautiful it would be to be counted alongside the Christ in this very little way, in the kind of hundred denarii sort of way. As far as repentance is genuine, infinite forgiveness is what marks God and his kingdom on earth. So within any community, we need to understand what is the thing that ultimately breaks any relationship. Relationships, um, they break not primarily because we sin and hurt each other, because that always happens in every community. Actually, they break because we lack the ability to forgive. The power lies in the hands of the victim to forgive. That is the point where the relationship truly breaks off. My prayer is that reality will empower us to be struck to the gut, to have Christ-like compassion and offer forgiveness infinitely to each other here. So here's the logic of Jesus' story, which let's not forget is all of our stories. However much you've been hurt, and are the victim, to God, we are the offender a million times over. Nobody, but nobody can offend us as much as we have offended God. And nobody, but nobody can hurt us as much as we have hurt God. Our problem doesn't lie in Act 2, but in Act 1. We struggle to think, to forgive someone as much as a hundred denarii. That's what we think is our problem. And that is an issue. It's not trivial. But the problem lies in Act 1. We fail to grasp that we have been forgiven 10,000 talents. Get that. And then infinite forgiveness will flow from us. We'll do really well to meditate on the logic of verse 32, where God says, I forgave you all that debt. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow brother or sister? What is my brother's sin against me in comparison to my sin against God? It's like a teaspoon of water 
compared with the Pacific Ocean. Stop counting your siblings' sins. For if you're counting, you're not forgiving. C.S. Lewis, as ever, puts it brilliantly. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Should we pray as we close? Loving, heavenly, gracious, compassionate Father. Thank you for this story, which tells us our story, if we are a Christian here today. Help this story go to work in our hearts and our minds. And help us meditate on Act 1, so as to infinitely forgive whenever we are in an Act 2 moment. For your glory we pray these things. Amen.